This is Howard Anderson, Managing Editor at Information Security Media Group. We're talking today with Jack Daniel, Project Lead for Security Services at Concordant. Jack will be providing some information security insights for physician group practices that are implementing their first electronic health record systems. Thanks for joining us today, Jack. Thank you for having me, Howard. Group practices across the country are preparing to implement EHRs and hoping to receive federal financial incentives under the High Tech Act to help pay some of the cost. As physician groups shop for an EHR system, what specific questions should they ask software vendors about privacy and security issues? And should those questions be different depending on whether the practice plans to host its own system or access it remotely via cloud computing? The, the first question and the first thing I would always start off with in a situation like that is how does that product fit the business's model and need? And with that, you know, comes all the regulatory drivers and, and things like that. So in order to answer your question, I would say that for in-house uh, implementations of a product, I would definitely start off with asking if the vendor is compliant and also if the product is compliant. From a HIPAA business associate perspective, we have to understand, okay, is the product compliant and does it meet compliance objectives? So if I have other security technologies I need to implement, uh, will it align with those and will it integrate? And also a, a good option there too is that if they can't provide you with proof of their compliance, or their regulatory stature, um, would they be open to a third-party assessment? Um, a lot of these companies, obviously, they don't want you coming in and, you know, digging into their own products, but uh, it's definitely always an option that's on the table is to assess them yourself with your own information security procedures and guidance. Um, also, I would ask them about remote support mechanisms. How do they come into your environment to support your product if there's a problem? Um, a lot of times the vendors themselves will actually dictate the standards that they use, and this is something important to understand when you're going through this process because if those mechanisms that they're using to remote into your infrastructure and environment don't fit your security model or your regulatory drivers, then that's not going to work. Um, also, the threat and vulnerability management that the platforms use. Um, how do they monitor and test for new vulnerabilities or, or problems or with the system itself, and then how do patches uh, get derived from that, and when are they released? Are they released regularly, or is it more reactive later down the road, say a few months or, or something to that effect, which could definitely cause some problems uh, that would need to be mitigated within your own environment? Um, and also, I would ask for, for customer references when it comes to security past security audits, reports, vulnerability scans, things to that nature, um, as well as types of encryption uh, the product supports. Obviously, encryption is a, is a big theme here, and it's definitely, you know, plays into the safe harbor under high tech. We need to make sure that the platform supports that. So that would be for an in-house implementation. Now, obviously, the, the questions would be pretty similar for a hosted environment um, with a few additions to that. Obviously, the compliance and regulatory drivers are still a major concern there. Um, and also, you're, you're concerned about the security of the data center as well as the product at that point. So you're going to ask for you know, different things that would be in place. Uh, they might even have a, a SAS 70 um, in place that they could provide you that they had a third-party audit done. Um, also, at that point, you'd be concerned about the recoverability, backup procedures, things like that that take place in the data center for your environment uh, to make sure that you can continue supporting your client base. A major concern uh, with the hosted model as well, and uh, we've seen this a lot, um, is to make sure that you have dedicated space in the hosted environment. A lot of times environments are shared, and obviously if environments are shared, that means information isn't necessarily siloed, um, and you're relying on 
maybe uh, you know lower level access control mechanisms. Uh, so at that point, you would definitely want your own dedicated space, so the space could be controlled and secured adequately to meet your regulatory and security needs. Um, also, you'd want to see any audit or vulnerability scan reports that they've had done at the data center on their their infrastructure as well as the product itself um, specific to your environment. Um, and if they can't provide you, you know, any types of audit reports or past security assessments, things like that, um, at that point, you're going to want to have a third-party assessment done on the product or conduct one yourself. Um, and at that point, you would be looking for a lot of general information security controls in place, how their coding practices work, network security, um, all the policies and procedures that surround that, their change management process, training, uh, things to that nature. For those who aren't familiar with it, could you please briefly describe how encryption works and then talk a bit about what the high-tech safe harbor for encrypted information means to group practices? Should all group practices implementing EHRs use encryption? Encryption is the process uh, by which information is transformed um, using an algorithm. So we take plain text and then apply a cipher to it, which is the algorithm, which makes it unreadable to anybody without the key. So essentially, you're making the information unusable um, to anybody that doesn't have the key to use that code. Um, the, the algorithms themselves are very complex, and they wouldn't be able to be computed by, by a human or, in most cases, by technology within a reasonable amount of time. Safe Harbor um, is a provision under the new healthcare legislation, HITECH and the ARA Act, um, that excludes organizations from having to notify patients, uh, HHS, and the media if PHI data is breached or stolen. However, the provisions under this state that the information has to be rendered unusable, unreadable, indecipherable, at which point no notification would be necessary. Um, so actually at that point, if a breach does occur, then there's no true disclosure of information because if the information is unusable and indecipherable, then there's not really a breach that has taken place. And obviously high-tech provides a lot of guidance when it comes to safe harbor. So the encryption that you use has to be in accordance with the NIST uh, Special Publication 800-111 um, uh, if it's at rest and, and FIPS 140-2 if it's in transit. And, and these guides are really meant to show you how to implement correctly, um, not necessarily dictate the exact uh, encryption mechanisms and, and processes you're going to use, but more so make sure that the encryption is going to work for you, it's going to work for your business process, um, and you can really create, you know, an ecosystem type of approach there. Uh, because once once you do that, um, you know, this is something that's going to be in your infrastructure that you're going to have to support. Um, and if it doesn't align with those things, then it's not going to work. Um, that's really where the NIST guidance really helps by laying out, um, you know, scoping practices and project management practices around the implementation of encryption and, and what things to look for when you're shopping for products um, and things like that. Um, and now the FIPS standards... Uh, the Federal Information Processing Standards, those are more granular and really telling you what you have to do um, in accordance with, with different rules and regulations for, for different points when you are shopping for products. In, in all of these scenarios, you know, the, the key management of the system is, is really paramount. If data was breached um, and it did disappear or fall into the wrong hands, um, if, if the key was with it, then at that point, then you would have to report the breach um, and notify the proper authorities. So, if it is breached, uh, you must be able to prove that you know the key was not compromised. Because if the key was compromised, then at that point you have to assume that the information was readable and decipherable at that point. And also the provisions under the Safe Harbor Act also discuss um, media destruction. So these are 
these are components that relate to paper or electronic media, things to that nature. Um, so in order to make sure that it's destroyed in accordance with um, Safe Harbor Act, you have to make sure that you know none of this information can be reconstructed, whether it's on paper or on digital media. On paper, you would have to make sure that it was shredded and pulped or you know truly destroyed where you couldn't read any of it. Um, and on magnetic media, you would have to do that in accordance with NIST standards as well um, by shredding or degaussing the magnetic media or by overwriting um, media multiple times. Um, the guidance also specifies that, you know, there's, there's also state legislation in place um, regarding privacy and breach notification and things like that. So if there is a state rule in effect that does say that no matter what you have to notify the consumers, then you, that would supersede the Safe Harbor Act, at which point you would have to notify all the proper authorities. As far as implementing encryption, I think it's vital that, that all practices really do implement encryption. And more so than that, it's really necessary to limit the amount of data you store. The less you store, the less you have to worry about securing. So only store exactly what fields and what information is absolutely necessary. Um, encryption, however, is definitely something that, that all practices should use and implement and really come up with a strategy that works for them, um, that aligns with their business model. Please describe how two-factor authentication works, and should physician groups consider using it for clinicians as well as patients in the early months of implementing EHRs or somewhat later in the game? Two-factor authentication is, is using two things to actually authenticate someone to use a system. Um, so really there's, there's three types of categories. There's something you know, which would be a, a PIN or a password or something of that nature, um, something you have, a token or a smart card uh, or certificate, something like that, and then also something you are. So uh, you, typically biometrics are used in this case, something in terms of a, a retina scan, a fingerprint scan, something like that. Um, so two-factor authentication would be a combination of two of those items. This is an interesting um, question because this is something that's been going on in the banking world for a number of years, and actually there's, there's a lot of common misnomers out there about two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication, as it's also referred to, um, in that you know a lot of banks and in initially trying to implement these types of technologies found that it was, it was very hard to implement and, and not cost-effective because it's hard to, to push biometric or something you have um, type of authentication out to someone um, at a cost-effective level. I would recommend um, at any point in time, if a practice or any organization is going to implement a security technology, that they bake it in from the beginning. It's always going to be more cost-effective, and it's going to align with the business as well as the, the technologies the business chooses to use if they discover that up front when they're scoping and, and determining the requirements around what they're trying to do. You know, it's it's really a common occurrence in, in healthcare IT security that, you know, security becomes an afterthought to operational concerns. So let's get this product up, let's get it running, then let's worry about how to secure it. And then when a lot of companies, you know, and organizations try to do this, they realize that it's a lot more difficult at that point and there's a lot more moving parts and pieces that they're concerned with and they really have to figure out how to integrate these two technologies, the security technology and the DHR system, you know, seamlessly and it becomes a lot more difficult at that point. Now, for patients, I don't necessarily think that at this point in time it's really feasible to use multi-factor authentication. Um, there are There is a lot of um, advancements in the world of, uh, of tokens and things to that nature that would fall under something you have category um, as far as virtual tokens, something where you can use your computer system as that something you have, you know, and something's hard-coded into it that can come back and authenticate you. 
Um, however, at this point, you know, the support cost of something like that and, and the cost of ownership in general would be far too high for, for a practice to support. Um, as far as for clinicians, I, I think it's absolutely necessary if clinicians need to access this information remotely um, from home or from another office um, that they use two-factor authentication. What other security technologies and strategies should group practices consider as they implement electronic health records? There's a lot of technologies out there. Some key ones, I think, that are going to provide uh, the practices what they need around these, you know, these different security topics is really technologies that can identify where the information is and give them vision into their security posture. Um, so we're talking about things like data loss prevention, where it's going to tell you where all your, you know, where all that electronic health information is. Um, you know, typically practices like to think that it's all in their EHR system or it's all in a specific place, but sometimes information, you know, ends up on a file share somewhere or, you know, a USB key or a desktop in a spreadsheet or something of that nature. I mean, it's, it's very important to understand where that information is. If you don't understand where it is or how it's used, then you're not going to be able to truly secure it. Also, technologies like vulnerability and threat management. So knowing what your your perimeter looks like. If this type of system, this EHR system, is available from the Internet or from the public-facing world, um, then it's going to be critical to understand what that perimeter looks like in terms of vulnerabilities and and what types of threats are actually out there um, that could harm that system. And and key here, as in most technologies and security implementations, is going to be uh, security information and event management. Um, So... The goal here is to log practically all pertinent events um, that would take place um, at the perimeter in the product. So who's accessing information, what they're doing with the information, who's amending information, um, when these things take place, uh, what administrators are doing on the system. Um, This can really provide different types of controls in a lot of different scenarios. So internally it can be preventative so people would think twice about, you know, trying to take information or things like that. Um, And obviously it's a detective measure, you know, if there was a problem or information missing. Um, And it's going to be critical when, um, you know, if a breach does take place that it's there for that that forensic purpose. Um, So you can go back and figure out exactly what happened so you can prevent that from happening in the future so it's corrective as well. Um, as we spoke about encryption, um, there's there's something along the terms of encryption that, that a lot of practices and, and organizations in general don't think about, and that's the encryption of mobile devices. Um, encryption of mobile devices is absolutely critical when you're talking about cell phones, PDAs, you know, uh, netbooks, things like that. Um, those devices really have a lot of exposure, and, and sometimes they kind of fly under the radar. Um, you're talking about, you know, someone... Uh, a clinician or, you know, even an administrative employee tries to access some of these this information from, from their phone because they got a link in an email and they're just trying to, you know, look something up quickly. Well, now that information could be stored in volatile memory on the phone or it could be cached in a browser or something to that effect. And you really want to make sure that, you know, if those devices go missing, which is pretty common, that that doesn't happen. And then that also goes along with removable media Removable media like external hard drives, thumb drives, things like that go missing quite frequently. It's not always with malicious intent, but they're small items and they get lost. If those devices aren't encrypted, then there's there's huge capability for loss and reputation damage and things like that there. As far as strategies, so I think governance is, is absolutely important in all organizations, but taking a top-down approach and really making sure that security has the highest buy-in in the organization, whether it be at a board level or, or a presidential level or something like that within the organization. 
um, only then will you know security be taken seriously and and really be enforced from that top level. So there are ramifications if something does happen and the organization is opened up to risk. How often should a practice conduct a risk assessment, and how should it be conducted? There's two different risk assessments that that should really occur at a practice level. Um, and that's really, they should be providing some sort of in-house uh, support to that. So doing an in-house life cycle or, or an ecosystem approach to, to risk assessments internally, as well as a third-party approach where you have an objective party come in and look at that. For an in-house level, and again, this is going to be determined upon the size of the practice. Um, so a practice that has less technology and less data, obviously this process would be a lot quicker and happen less frequently. But in-house, I would say a minimum of once a year. So typically, what I would recommend is that organizations break up the tasks of their risk assessments quarterly or monthly, depending on what works best for the organization. So that way, they're constantly looking at the security, the risks, and the threats that pose, that pose to the organization and really evolving that program. Um, also, you'd want to do whenever major changes or upgrades occurred or adoptions of new technologies and services, things to that nature. I would definitely recommend having an annual review of all the security and controls that are in place from a third party. Um, this really gives you an objective view and also a good view of people who have, you know, done this for other organizations similar to your size and might have, a, you know, a different approach to looking at it than you would and would notice risks that maybe flew under the radar within the organization. Risk assessment should should definitely be conducted in accordance with some sort of best practice framework that's adopted by the organization whether it be the National Institute for Standards and Technology or um, Control Objectives for IT by ISACA. Um, I really think it's important that organizations adopt a, a security framework um, that, they can, that they can live by almost. These frameworks provide full spectrum of security controls and risks that apply to the organization. So once you have this comprehensive framework in front of you, it's a lot easier to map to what you have in your environment and truly understand the risks that exist. This process should always start with identifying business requirements, processes, and goals. Um, again, it's, it's absolutely critical to always start with the business side and really understand what the need is um, and how those technologies align. So from the business side, what, what we should do is, is really sit down and initially scope out what the requirement is. So what are the requirements of the business? How does the business operate? And then what are the processes that support that? So how is information gathered at that point where you're looking at how that information is, is entered or collected into a system, then how that information is stored in that system, and then how that information is, is exchanged with other organizations or within that system. Um, so at that point, you have the collection, the transport, and the storage of the information um, and all the controls that apply there. Uh, so, so you really want to create this, this, this type of ecosystem where you're looking at all these different parts and pieces. So the business processes for how they collect this data and the controls that would apply around that, as well as where that information is stored once it's collected and the controls that exist around that and the business processes for maintaining that system. And then, you know, lastly, the exchange and transport of that information and, and the controls that rely around that as well and the processes for maintaining it. Now, once all of that is aligned with, with the business, now you can start creating an actionable plan and see if those recommendations fit with the business or, or those ideas or goals or even those technologies you want to implement really align with, with how the business is planning to use technology. And, and then at that point, you will really have quantified gaps or weaknesses, and you can recommend or implement the correct and appropriate technologies. 
Well, thanks, Jack. We've been talking today with Jack Daniel of Concordant. This is Howard Anderson of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.